Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will tell you, rejoice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Sherry and I were living in Philadelphia in the mid-1970s when the Philadelphia Flyers won the Stanley Cup. Now, I grew up in South Florida before there were ice, any, before it occurred to anybody to put any ice skating rinks in South Florida. So hockey was like, I had no idea what it was. But even though we were living in the suburbs on the night that the Flyers won, we could not escape the eruption of joy that engulfed the whole Philadelphia area. It was wonderful. It was glorious. I hope that everybody has a chance to be in the middle of one of those kinds of great celebrations. I wish that I could, because I'm young enough that I wasn't around, I wish that I could time travel back to Times Square at the, when World War II was declared to be over and the whole city of New York erupted in glorious rejoicing. Biblical writers get an opportunity, it seems, to try time travel themselves and envision what the great day of the Lord is going to be like. Zephaniah caught a vision of that when he, when he imagined the end of time God singing a song of victory over his people. Isaiah got a vision of it as he imagined the day when the wells would open with the water of salvation. John the Baptist caught a vision of it as well when he realized that when he saw a day when the phony believers, the self-serving civil servants, and the abusive bearers of the sword wouldn't have the last say, but when good news would be set loose as fire from heaven, and there would be a cleansing and purging of the whole human race. Paul offers three words of Advent for you and me under the heading of the Lord is near. And because the Lord is near, he wants us to time travel forward to the day when the Lord has come and to live as though it had already taken place. And so he says, rejoice. He says, be gentle. And third, he says, well, I'm summing up what he says. Know that you are in, you are in strong arms. So, three things today. Joy, gentleness, and guarding arms. God folds you into his story of joy. The story that Zephaniah knew. The story that Isaiah knew. The story that John the Baptist knew and the story that Paul knows. Paul is writing to the Philippians, sitting in a Roman jail. But his letter to the Philippians is filled with notes of joy because he knows that his imprisonment is not the end of the story. 
Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And he goes on in that chapter to talk about how wonderful it is to know that you've been freed from having to establish your own righteousness, your own standing before God. You're free from having to pass anybody else's test. Your parents, your boss, your teachers, your coaches. You are free to allow every experience that you have of suffering to be an experience of fellowship with Christ and to know him in a way that you would not otherwise have known him. And in that, you and I can rejoice. Bring it on. Philippians 4.1, just a few verses before today's passage. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. We can look ahead to the end of time and in even now say, that person, that person, that person is my joy and crown. It has been an honor to be alongside them, to know them, to be known by them, to be helped along the way by them. I count them. I count so many of you here in this room and that we are able to relate to right now only across by screen as my joy and my crown because I know where the story goes. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul encourages the Philippians to rejoice, to rejoice together with him even at the prospect of his own martyrdom. He knows that because Jesus has come, Jesus has risen from the dead, and Jesus is coming again, that a power has been unleashed that turns gloom into joy, even the prospect of having your life poured out as a libation in martyrdom, which is why through the centuries, Christian martyrs have found themselves singing psalms and scriptures tied to burning beers with logs burning about them, about to consume their bodies. Knowing the end of the story and knowing that we have been folded into that story makes your heart sing in the middle of the darkest night and the most daunting of prospects, the scariest of prisoners. It's why the jailers find Paul and Barnabas singing in the Philippian jail back in Acts 16. It's why Paul in Philippians 2, sitting again now in a jail, now in Rome itself, can really, he can launch the now two millennia long project of Christians writing hymns to Christ because in Philippians 2, he turns to poetry to express his great love and admiration for the Lord Jesus who has put him in this prison, who though he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every 
every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And from Philippians on, Paul writes most of his stuff in prison and every paragraph or so he turns to poetry to express the wonder of the song that the joy of Christ has unleashed, unloosed, set free in him. I pray that you, living in a joyless world, I pray that you, no matter what you are going through, and Christmas time especially can be hard, I pray that you will find the joy in the midst of it, the fellowship of Christ even in the sufferings, and that people will look at you and say, why is it that you have joy in the midst of your tears? I pray that you know joy in that service to one another and to the world around you. I pray that you know that in your giving of yourself and your resources, your person to the Lordship of Christ. So, joy, I wish you in the name of Paul. I wish you to know God's way of dealing with you is a way of gentleness that gives you the ability to relate to others with gentleness and with kindness and with patience. What Paul does with the Corinthians when they're, they're misbehaving is he appeals to them out of what he calls the meekness and the kindness. And it's the word that he uses here in, in uh, Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness, let your forbearance be known to all people. He appeals to the meekness and the gentleness of Christ to tame them down, to tame them. And right after he encourages the joy among the Philippians in Philippians 4.1, he, he turns to two sisters, Euodia and Syntyche, two Christian sisters that he's been counting on for their leadership in the Philippian church, and they're fighting with one another. And he wants them to learn to be gentle and kind and forbearing with one another because God has shown his kindness to us so that we can show the kindness to others. And here is Paul himself being a kind and gentle leader. Greeks like to use this word epiakeia to talk about the way that good leaders showed people whom they were leading not necessarily what justice called for at the moment, but what would be more than justice, what would move them further into growth. And that's, Greeks understood, what made good leaders. Um, I only tell stories about congregants by name when I ask their permission. So I wanna tell a story about one of you all um, with his permission. Uh, retired three-star Army General Jay Garner um, grew up in Arcadia, went on to be a Marine, worked among the Montagnards in Vietnam, later was in the Army, helped develop the uh, Patriot missile system, and then was the head of the government of Iraq right after 
right after the war to try to help the factions come together. And he worships among us week after week. Very kind, gentle leader. Here's part of the reason that retired Lieutenant General Jay Garner became a leader. When Jay grew up, he grew up in Arcadia, down on the southwest coast of Florida, on a farm. When he was a sophomore in high school, he was the only sophomore who made his high school basketball team. And he was a bench warmer for most of that year. But on their, the night of their first home game against St. Cloud, who had a pretty darn good basketball team and a couple of really star uh, senior um, uh, guards, uh, Jay was on the bench where he was supposed to be until their star guard, his team's star guard, fouled out with a minute left in the game with the score tied. So coach said, Jay, get in there. So Jay gets out there, gets the ball, dribbles up the court, and these two guys are just all over him, and ref calls foul. So with 25 seconds left, Jay Garner gets to go to the free throw line with the chance to win the game. And he goes, I'm a pretty good free throw shot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make one, at least one of these shots. Well, the first one, you can just imagine being there. The first shot goes halfway to the goal and hits the floor. Oh, okay, that's not going to happen this next time. So he gets the ball. This time he shoots and it goes, he overcompensates. It goes off the top of the backboard and the other team recovers the ball. They don't score. Time runs out. And well, Jay spends the overtime sitting back on the bench. And, it, and, and his team wins. But he's so ashamed and embarrassed that after the game, he, he just dresses really quickly, doesn't shower, just goes home. And the next day happens to be Sunday. And he was raised in the Episcopal Church. He goes to communion and he's just praying, Oh Lord, please, please don't let coach be too mad at me. Please don't let him kick me off the team. Okay, so Monday, he's got to go to school. And he has to go to biology class, which means he has to walk by the coach's office. And so he does what you and I would do. He puts himself on the other side of the hall, tries to hide himself by others, behind other students going down. And then all of a sudden, he hears this voice go, hey, Jay, get in here. And the coach calls him here. Here's how leaders make leaders. Jay goes in and he's expecting to get just his clock cleaned. Coach comes from behind his desk, puts his arm around him, and he says, I didn't get to see you Saturday night after the game. I wanted to tell you how proud I was of your performance. You kept your nerve. You didn't lose the ball. You kept us in the game so that we could win in overtime you played a good game. And Jay goes, yeah, coach, I missed two free throws. I could have won the game. And the coach goes, well, it's like, I never missed any free throws. I see you in practice. Because somebody, somebody spoke hope. Somebody spoke words of affirmation. Some, a leader showed kindness and gentleness to him, his life was different. 
How many people do you know who are angry and bitter, disgruntled, because nobody ever said, hey, you did a great job. Anybody could miss free throws. But how many people just grow up going like, no, there's a standard. You don't meet the standard. You're nothing. And they have to spend their whole lives just fighting back, self-justifying, self-punishing by punishing everybody else. You and I live in a world populated by such people, but we have been treated not as we think we deserve, not as we know that we deserve. We have been treated with kindness and forbearance by the king of the universe who's made us co-heirs with his son. And because we know where the story's going, we can live as though that were really true. We can be kind and we can be forbearing. And we can be leaders in a culture of people who will follow the craziest. We'll just leave it at that. Third, Paul goes on to say, have no anxiety about anything. Okay, Paul's sitting in prison. He may not live to see the next day. Have no anxiety about anything. Instead, let your requests and supplications be made known to God with thanksgiving. And then he gives that promise that shows up at the end of so many of our services. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God. When Sherry and I were brand spanking new parents with a brand spanking new baby, we brought him home from the hospital, took him to the doctor for his first visit. <clears throat> it's my job to hold this baby in the waiting room. He is grumpy, which, you know, sometimes babies do that. Well, and I'm, I'm a rookie. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm gonna look like I do. So I get up and I'm walking around and I'm bouncing him around and I'm talking to him like, and this nice lady comes over to me. She looks me in the eyes and says, son, give me that baby. And she just wraps her arms around little Charlie and she just puts him up against her and she goes, baby, I got you. Baby, I got you. Baby, I got you. And feeling safe and secure in those strong, calm arms, he just settles right in. When you and I are just in such a frenzy of worry, what's gonna happen? What am I gonna do? What am I supposed to do? His invitation is <laughs> give me that baby. And he just wants you to go to that place where you tell him, here's what's bothering me. And he'd go, I got you, I got you. And then Paul appends the promise. 
The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard. Now, this is a word that's usually used in a negative context. It's like you would put a guard outside Paul's cell so that he couldn't get out. It's a word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11 when King Aretas put Damascus under lockdown so that he could catch Paul. And Paul, that's when Paul got let out through the, uh, through the wall of the city in a, in a rope basket. But Paul uses it here in a positive way. God, God will guard your heart. He will protect you. He will not allow the things that worry you, the things that cause you fear to disturb you. The other person who uses this word in a positive way is, is 1 Peter. You, says Peter in 1 Peter 5, 1, 5, and 6, you are being protected or guarded by the power of God for salvation, a salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, you rejoice. It's as though he had read the letter to the Philippians. In this, you rejoice even for a little while, even if for a little while you have to suffer various trials. And so, friends, this Advent season, I pray, I pray from the depths of who I am that you and I know that the end is near and that we can rejoice as though it were already done and that we could live in the gentleness and the meekness of Christ so that his life becomes attractive to those who know only bitterness and anger. And may we know the strong arms of our God who holds us and says, I got you. Just tell me what's on your heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.